Progressive Rugby League. Hello, John O'Duncan. Now, this podcast is, of course, a bit of an attention-seeking exercise, so shoot me. And yeah, I like it when people say they enjoy the show, but I like it even more when my receipt of virtual affection is accompanied by an expansion of the mind. Yes, that's a pretentious way of saying I like it when I learn something along the way. I'm learning from each interview on this podcast. Each and every guest that has tread the progressive rugby league boards has taught me much about rugby, society, sport, culture, and meaning. One of my favourite lessons of the last few months, and yours by the reaction to the episode, came from Professor Tony Collins, who gave us an early glimpse into his new book, Rugby League, A People's History. Now, it just so happens that this book is being released this week. So I thought, why don't we get him back on? My inner voice is always high-pitched. No, it's not. Yes, it is, mate. After all, there is only so much one can download from a brain in an hour's podcast. And I just know that the people of the people's game want more, more, more from the man they call the good professor at least the man I called Good Professor. Now, Tony is not only one of the game's preeminent social historians, his timing is also as impeccable as a beautifully judged shoulder under the ribcage, for the release of his book coincides with the 125th anniversary of Rugby League's birth. That's right, on the 29th of August, Rugby League turns 125, which gives us a license to roam. So sure, we'll touch on his new book, but today, we'll go further into the realm of speculation. Yes, today we'll be the winger coming in off the sideline, sniffing an opportunity around the ruck. We'll be the bench utility trying an unlikely chip and chase in the hope she or he can bridge that four-point deficit. Yes, we're going there. What does the last 125 years of rugby and society and culture teach us about what we might expect in the next 125 years? What has gotten into us? Now, such a ridiculously impossible undertaking is not something historians normally volunteer for because, by definition, future speculation is not part of an historian's job description. It's also a hiding to nothing, as the likelihood of making anything like an accurate prediction is vanishingly low. But luckily for us, Tony has never been one to shy away from a bit of overtime and a bit of a challenge. So it's with great pleasure and gratitude that we welcome Professor Tony Collins back to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Tony... Hello, and welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me back. I'm not sure I can live up to that billing, but I'll do my best. I've got my crystal ball in front of me as well. Yeah, we can only do our best. So it is great to have you back on, Tony. Now, we will inevitably touch on the book in today's chat, but for those who want to hear and learn more about Rugby League of People's History, you can download our book club episode from April or subscribe to Tony's brilliant podcast, Rugby Reloaded, as I'm sure there'll be some juicy snippets offered over the next few weeks. But today we're going further and we're going out on a bit of a limb. And it's at this point that we should put our hands up and offer some heavy duty caveats. So please remember, ladies and gentlemen, as we go through the show, that there will be some industrial strength speculation in today's episode. Hopefully it's informed speculation, but either way, hold us to nothing. So, Tony, with that small but significant disclaimer out of the way, let's get chatting. But before we get to the crux of the discussion, I do want to start off with a question about the new book, Rugby League of People's History. Now, when I read an early copy of the book several months ago, you hadn't yet finalized the cover image, but you have now, and it's a beauty. It's Billy Boston that adorns the cover. It must always be a difficult choice to choose a front cover image, but for a book such as this, which aims to throw its arms around the entire history of the game and all its component parts, it must have been particularly tricky. So, Tony, why Billy Boston? 
Well, it's not just Billy Boston. It's it's actually a photo of the 1960 Rugby League Championship final between Wigan and Wakefield Trinity. Mm. That Wigan won quite comfortably in the end, 27-3. Billy's got two tries in it. So I wanted it for a whole variety of reasons. Partly because, obviously, Billy Boston's an icon of the game. He's also one of the black pioneers of the game, so that's very important. Mm-hmm. The 1960 Championship game kind of symbolises the 83,000 people were at Oddsall Stadium in Bradford to watch it. Mm. But it kind of symbolises the end of the great boom in rugby league attendances that took place after World War II. Right. And in the 1960s, they start to decline. But to be honest, the other reason I got it is because it's an incredible picture of what the game means to people. Mm. Basically, Billy has just touched the ball down and there's unrestrained joy on his face. Mm. But you can see the crowd because the crowd has spilled onto the pitch and there are people in varying states of just absolute joy. Mm. There's schoolboys, there's older men, there's women. Whoever took the photograph brilliantly timed it because it's just at that perfect moment and I think all well fans of any sport know when their team scores Mm. there's that initial moment of ecstasy that when time stands still Mm. and whoever the photographer has has captured that brilliantly and the crowd as I said the schoolboy is a schoolboy in his uniform why he had to wear his uniform on a Saturday afternoon to go to a match I have no idea there's older men, there's younger men, there's women. There's a woman at the back who I can only assume is a Wakefield Trinity supporter because she looks really, really miserable. And there's also a bloke just in front of her who has his head hanging down. Uh, and again, I assume he's a Trinity supporter. So it kind of encapsulates so much about the social history of the game as well as its kind of fundamental appeal. That it's an activity that can bring those incredible moments of emotional highs. Mm, it really is a wonderful image. Yeah, you see the satisfied expression on Billy Boston's face, obviously done something constructive. I, like, I think you said score to try and the crowd really close behind him applauding heartily. Yeah, like such a great shot. Okay, Tony, let's get speculating, shall we? So the way this will work, ladies and gentlemen, is that I'll pose a few big questions about the long-term future of the game, the very long-term future. And Tony and I will basically take turns to have a swing and we'll see where it all takes us. So the first question I want to pose to you, Tony, is over the next 125 years or so, and feel free to be generous with or so, we're all friends here, are the two rugby codes more likely to diverge or converge as on-field products? So even if they remain separate codes, will they essentially eventually become the same game or will there always be marked differences between the two codes? So, Tony, I'm happy to go first with this one. I'm going to lead with my chin. I'm going to argue that the two rugby codes will slowly but surely converge into being essentially the same game, even if they officially remain separate codes. I think it might eventually become the case of how it was during the 1997 Rugby League season in Australia, where there were two competitions, both playing essentially the same game, but with minor differences that most wouldn't even notice. That's how I think things will eventually pan out way, way down the track. There might still be two codes with subtle differences, but it'll be very hard to tell the difference between the two. So my reasoning, Tony, is that for most of the first 100 years of a two-code existence, the two rugby codes had two very different goals. Rugby League had a largely commercial goal. They wanted to make some cash to, among other things, pay their players. So it was therefore essential to keep the game entertaining so that people would pay the money at the gate. And so there was an undoubted focus on how the game looked and how it came across. Meanwhile, for a lot of rugby union's history, particularly up to the mid-90s when they officially turned pro, their goals were very different. You've written extensively about the ideology of amateurism and the moral formation, and I'm putting these in quotation marks because in reality it was much more than that. But anyway, commercial considerations and how the game looked weren't 
necessarily a huge priority all the time. So for most of the last 125 years, the goals of each code were quite different and the codes definitely diverged, but really not by that much. Sure, one game had 13 players, one game had lineouts, but non-sporting types wouldn't really realize there's a difference between the two codes if they came across one or another. But in the 25 years since the two codes have had the same goal, let's call it a commercial goal with both codes now explicitly part of the entertainment industry, the codes have started to converge again, both with some rule changes, but also with the philosophy of the way teams play. Rugby Union has tinkered with some of their rules, but you could also argue the six again rule that has been implemented on both sides of the equator in rugby league also brings the codes closer together in that you can get repeat phases just like you can in rugby union. So if you have, let's say, the next 125 years where both codes have the same goal, entertainment and commercial gain, isn't it inevitable that the codes will converge to such an extent that even hardy fans of either code will take a while to notice the difference? Because I'm making the assumption that the idea of what is entertaining about rugby either code is very narrow. It's about seeing great passing, great running, and flow. So sure, some people love the art of the scrum in Union, some people love the art of the wrestle in League, but I don't think either of those things sell. It's the running, it's the passing, it's the flow that sells. And if you have 125 years where the two codes, which are already similar, have the same goal of entertainment, remembering for most of their history they've had different goals, and if the idea of what entertaining rugby is is fairly narrow, how can they not converge, Tony? I'd love to get your thoughts. Well, I agree to a large extent because as well as the points you make, that there's also a kind of evolutionary logic about how the rugby codes have developed. Mm-hmm. So unless you get rid of the offside rule in some way, as Aussie rules did way back in the 1860s, or you allow passes to go forward, as American football did from the early 1900s, mm. then you're kind of constrained very much about what you can do. And I've said this before, I think we said it on the last show, that to some extent, Union is going down the same path today that league went down well began going down 125 years ago because Mm -hmm. again when you go back to the origins of the split one of the issues that was at stake was also about how the game was played whether it was about running passing scoring tries which is what the northern clubs felt Mm -hmm. or whether it was about kicking goals and the scrummaging the line out set pieces as the leadership of the rugby union felt Mm -hmm. so there is a logic there so unless rugby union decided that it was going to allow a forward pass or something like that then it doesn't have a lot of options to explore Mm. that are different from the ones that rugby league has having said that i think the other point that's very important is that sport and particularly the rugby codes represent something more than just what happens on the pitch Mm. and particularly in the case of rugby in a sense I mean obviously one of the differences as you pointed out was the commercialism versus amateurism Mm. but there was also a sense of class in that to a greater or lesser extent that rugby league was always viewed as the working class sport and largely viewed itself as a working class sport and that reflected who played and who watched mm-hmm. rugby union wherever it's played with the partial section of south wales and one or two other places it was always a game of the middle classes the privately educated the university educated the people with professional careers and that still runs very deep despite all the changes that have taken place mm. and so people within both games identify those games with a set of values that are beyond sport in a sense Mm -hmm. so that's a massive inhibiting factor a great example of this which i think is mind-boggling when you hear about it is the fact that the gps schools in sydney the the private schools in sydney Mm -hmm. do not play rugby league they play every other sport 
but rugby league, which is you know in the world capital of rugby league, <laughs> uh, although Brisbane, well, semi Brisbane. I mean, Brisbane might dispute the world capital title, <laughs> but again, in Brisbane, uh, the private schools don't play rugby league. So uh, these social and cultural differences run, in a sense, far deeper than the differences in the way the game's played, mm. and that inhibits the games from adopting too much of either sport. So, mm. I so feel for like, example, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I feel like they're sort of sleepwalking into convergence in a way. It's like, yeah, I think you're right. Because of all those issues you mentioned, they wouldn't want to be seen like one code is going closer towards another. But it just seems like, like you say, there's not that much room to go. And because the idea of what's entertaining and, you know, in terms of commercial product is actually quite narrow. So I wonder if they're kind of sleepwalking towards convergence. But I interrupted. Continue. That's true to some extent, because there's a a staggering lack of awareness on both sides of the history of the other code. Mm. So to some extent, there's not necessarily a sense that that's what's happening. But I think you can see the way in which the, for example, the scrum in rugby union is seen by most fans and people in rugby union as absolutely the crucial, most central part of the game. Mm. When in fact it's declined in internationals, you get about 12, 13, 14 scrums mm. a game, which is a little different from rugby league before this year. So there's a kind of, if you like, there's a fetishization of some of the features of the game that, mm. you know, that seem to express the particular identity of that sport and the fact that you know rugby union will not adopt a, a play the ball rule, mm. despite ironically the play the ball being closer to the very, very first rules of rugby mm. than the current breakdown rules are in rugby union. So, but I suppose so if, I can, you, if you clean up the breakdown in rugby union enough, it becomes a, a quasi play the ball in the end, doesn't it? Yes, potentially. But again, there's what you often hear in rugby union is whenever rule changes are proposed, then people complain that it's too much like rugby league. It's becoming rugby league. Mm. And so there are obstacles there. But the other thing I think is that it's actually difficult to envisage how they would actually come together because there would be open rebellion Mm. on either or both sides at that. And what you would actually have is three codes of rugby. (laughs) You'd have a merged code and then traditional league and traditional union. So who knows what might happen? I mean, if there's a massive economic social crisis then Mm. that might change configurations so I I don't know this is the interesting thing that both games are stuck in their past Mm. and it's very difficult to move beyond that because to do that would alienate the hardcore of your support yeah no well I think that dovetails nicely into our next question because yeah I suppose the point I'm getting at I think the codes they may remain separate codes but the games have become incredibly similar I wonder also if there's a Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere divide in terms of what you're saying as well. And when there's a rule change presented uh, in rugby union, you know, they say it's way too much like league. I I don't feel the same sense in the Southern Hemisphere. That might be because rugby league is dominant in Australia and it's also, you know, has a presence in New Zealand as well. And there's obviously a different philosophy of rugby union between the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere as well. Yeah, that's true. That might be the case. But again, there's a, um, in a sense, the breakup of the, whatever it's super rugby and the South African team's probably heading to the Northern Hemisphere kind of cements that division between Mm. the more open rugby union style of Australia and New Zealand and the sort of more traditional forward dominated game of South Africa and the Northern Hemisphere Mm. so you know and in a sense that would have been the axis of the split if it had been carried all the way through Mm. in 1907 Australia as a whole and New Zealand as a whole would have gone over to the Northern Union but again they were restrained from doing that because of the cultural significance of what rugby union meant to the middle classes of Australia and New Zealand and the link with the the mother country Britain Mm. at the time so again the weight of culture Mm. 
often outplays the logic of both what goes on on the pitch and sometimes commercialism as well. Yeah, no, fair enough. Very good points. Thank you, Tony. Okay, well, like I say, this kind of conversation dovetails into our next question, which goes as follows. So if the two codes do converge or become very similar, even if they don't, can you ever see the two codes eventually merging into one? Are there any scenarios where it could happen? Well, I preface this by saying over my dead body first. <laughs> right. um, that, that's not just because, obviously, I'm a leaguey, mm. but also because I think it's good to have different codes. One of the great things about coming to Sydney is that you can watch four of the world's football codes played to a very high standard. Mm. So I think that kind of diversity and cultural difference is important and it's worth preserving. Mm. I'm not knocking soccer at all, but... If you only have one football code, as much of the world does, mm. it's... Um, Where's you know, the variety? It, yeah, there's no variety, and it kind of leads to conformity and mm. homogeneity. So, what circumstances would there be a merger? Well, one of the points to make, I think, is that it wouldn't be a merger. Mm. That unless rugby league got really, really rich, really, really quickly, mm. it would probably be a takeover mm. by rugby union. Because obviously rugby union is more economically powerful. It's got all the institutional mm-hmm. strength of an establishment sport. So it'd be very difficult to imagine a scenario where rugby league was the dominant partner in any merger. Mm. Although having said that, I think the game missed a historic opportunity during the Super League War mm. in 1995 when you know, Murdoch was pouring millions, well, billions into the game. There was a chance there, just at the point that rugby union was hesitating about going professional. Right. There was a possibility there that Murdoch's money could have been used to tempt significant teams over to league. You know, certainly I think that should have been something that was explored by the rugby league authorities, but obviously it never was. Mm. So, barring a repeat of someone offering billions and billions of pounds to the game, then it's unlikely that league is going to be the, the dominant partner in any merger. Mm. I, I do think, though, that one of the problems that rugby league has is the fact that the circumstances of its birth, uh, to break away and form a new game, was, a, uh, in a sense, an incredibly brave and radical move because it was a step into the unknown. Mm. Nobody involved in setting up the Northern Union or in New Zealand and Australia knew what could happen to them afterwards. They'd, all they knew was that they would face the undying hostility of rugby union. Mm. But on the other hand, it's such an unusual thing to do for a sport uh, or a group of people in the sport to break away in opposition to the leadership of sport and develop their own organisation and their own rules. It also means that I think there's a certain tendency in rugby league to look back over its shoulder and be quite deferential towards rugby union. In the early years there was a trickle back to rugby union mm-hmm. by you know, officials and players who could manage it because it was felt that they didn't want to be outside the establishment. That was particularly true also in rugby league when Bill Fallowfield was the secretary or the equivalent of the chief executive in the 1950s and 1960s. Mm-hmm. You know, he regretted the split and wanted to bring in rugby union rules and was very friendly with rugby union people. Really? And I think you still get that to some extent today. There's a kind of deference towards union. You know, the idea that, for example, the idea that what possible interest could we have in a Kangaroos versus All Blacks game? Mm. Uh, I, you know, yeah. It's basically you know, helping to raise money for New Zealand Rugby Union. Mm. So I think there's that sense of deference towards Rugby Union. And you can see it when, whenever there's talk of you know, cross-code games and things like that. And if you like, that's the potential to be the worm in the bud, that 
if things get really bad for rugby league financially, for example, in the Northern Hemisphere, mm. it's not beyond the realms of possibility that a club owner or owners could say, we're not we're not doing very well here, crowds are down, we're not making enough money. Mm. Whereas, you know, the grass is greener on the rugby union side, maybe we should try fill the rugby union side as well to see how we go there and then the thing could snowball. Mm. It's unlikely to because I don't think people would go and see that. But I think that's the circumstance that you might see some kind of merger or breakaway back to you. But I think it's highly unlikely. And I think this is a good time to remind our listeners if they're getting worried that, of course, we're talking yeah, pure speculation and way, way down the track, you know, 100 years down the track and we're just uh, giving it a crack here. So let's not worry too much. But I suppose the, the fact for me that the codes, particularly in the UK, are run by different classes of society, classes that don't really mix all that much. You'd imagine that unless there's some major revolutionary societal shock, something beyond, you know, what we're experiencing in 2020, that it's it's probably unlikely that the codes will merge. And that even if the codes essentially become the same game, like I'm suggesting they might, they will continue to be run by different organisations and officially remain two separate codes. Like I said, 1997 in Australia, the, there were two rugby league competitions. They were pretty much the same game, but connoisseurs would have noticed a difference. Super League seemed a little faster. They had a rule where the try score kicked off and the ARL, I'm pretty sure, brought in the 40-20 rule that year. So they were, they were different competitions with slightly different rules, but essentially the same game. And maybe that's what will eventuate. I suppose there are a couple of scenarios where that could change. I've been thinking about this. One could revolve around the future of capitalism. Your book, Tony, Sport in Capitalist Society, I can't recommend this highly enough to people, uh, talks about how professional sport is the product of modern capitalism and how it's no coincidence that the rise of professional sport coincides with the rise of capitalism. And of course, the rugby codes are a part of this. And I guess while capitalism still dominates our societies and while both rugby's have their tribe that is willing to pay each code's way, there's no reason to merge. But what if the prevailing way to organise a society moves away from our current conception of capitalism? Or, presuming the current style of capitalist society still dominates, what if the market decides they don't want to pay as much for one or both rugby codes any longer? I think that's what you're alluding to in your response. Or maybe, most likely, what happens if technology changes to the extent that the revenue model for professional sport breaks, just like how the revenue model for journalism has broken somewhat with advertising revenues being hoovered up by Google and Facebook. So I suppose those are the scenarios in in my mind which could force a change to business as usual. But Tony, maybe it comes back to a more fundamental question of what is the point of rugby league? What is its purpose? So on a political economic spectrum for professional sports, you know, between say the social democrat to neoliberal you might say rugby league sits towards the social democrat side you know salary caps the community work aspect as opposed to the the neoliberal side of maybe a formula one or something do you see that as being fundamental to what rugby league is all about and a key to its future as being and remaining a distinct code no matter what the game looks like on the field yeah it's a good question what's the, what's the purpose of any sport let alone rugby league as you say, I mean, we tend to think of sport as this, you know, it's been played since time immemorial, but modern football codes, modern sports are really only 150 or so years old. They're very much a part of the mass entertainment economy that grew up in the mid-19th century mm. in the English-speaking world and spread around. So, you know, the rugby codes are as much as part of that as anything else. Mm. Rugby league, however, I think, in a sense, this sounds like a cliche and wishful thinking, but it's not, because rugby league was actually formed because the clubs in the north of England found themselves in 
almost a one-sided class war where mm. the rugby union authorities in Britain and to some extent in Australia felt their authority to be under attack by the, the massive influx of working class players and spectators into the game. Mm. So the rugby league clubs, in order simply to survive the attacks of the rugby union, had to break away and begin a game that was founded on, in a sense, the mirror image of what the rugby union was trying to do. Rugby union wanted to make rugby an exclusive game, or at least a game that was controlled exclusively by basically the privately educated middle classes. Mm. But rugby league, therefore, in, in opposition to that, had to create a game that was open to everybody and allowed everyone to, you know, whether you had, providing you were good enough to play on the pitch, nothing else mattered mm. in terms of your background, your occupation or status. So that's, you know, in a very real sense, that's the purpose of rugby league. That's why it started, to allow everyone to have an equal opportunity to play. And to some extent, this sounds, I mean, this is not, it's not an easy thing to believe mm. that a sport was founded on that because, you know, and I've had people, you know, I've given lectures and people said, oh, surely that's not true. <laughs> Did the leads of rugby league really believe this? Well, they did to some extent. And certainly the supporters of the game believe that, which is why you have the whole, as you say, it's kind of social democratic mm. philosophy behind the game, both in wherever it's played, you know, whether it's Britain, France, Australia, New Zealand, wherever. The sense that it's a, an open game, it's an inclusive game, it's a democratic game, it's not a game of the establishment, as you well know, even in Sydney. Mm. It's still not a game of the elite uh, for a whole variety of reasons. So that's the purpose of the game. And I think that's something that's very important that needs to be preserved because no other sport has that. Mm. And no other sport has that same history. So in a lot of ways, and this goes back to what we talked about in the previous question, there's more at stake. When we talk about the potential to merge with the rugby union, there's more at stake than just the rule book. There's mm. a whole history of struggle against injustice. I mean, that's not to prettify to say, you know, it's some kind of radical revolutionary organisation or anything mm. like that, because obviously there is also a long history of racism, uh, particularly male chauvinism, and a lot of backwardness. Mm. But fundamentally, the game has been able to offer much more to ordinary people, to working class people, than, than many other sports have. And I think that's really that's what's at stake when we talk about the merger of the games. It's a completely different tradition and culture mm-hmm. that needs to be preserved. So Yeah, so it's political, it's cultural. These are the, the issues and these are the, the reasons why they're likely to remain separate codes. Yeah, and I think, again, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The other thing Rugby League has always had in its heart is the search for a more thrilling, exciting spectacle mm. and a better game to play and watch. So it's always been prepared to innovate and experiment in a way that Rugby Union hasn't, for example, and to focus on those elements that take the game of rugby in its broadest sense to its highest heights. And I think that's something, in a sense, the two things that the game carries forward from its origins that are absolutely at its core mm. are the, if you like, twin engines of being an inclusive sport, but also being a sport that wants to maximise, in a sense, the most appealing aspect of sport. So, as well as offering the sense of an inclusive game, rugby league has always had at its heart from 1895 and 1907 the ability to constantly go back to what makes rugby the most thrilling of all games mm. by its emphasis on 
you know, how do we make it more exciting? How do we increase the skill levels of the players so we can see the essence yeah. of the game, which is passing, running, and scoring tries? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, actually, and it probably sort of flies in the face of what I've been arguing because of that second twin engine that you mentioned of entertainment that I think Rugby Union is now on board with, and I'm arguing that, you know, that therefore they'll converge. But you bring up a point that because... And you bring up the point that Rugby League is quite agile on its feet and that it can change things pretty quickly. And I think that's because there's only really two competitions and, you know, the NRL, you know, they won't even ask Super League about rules. They'll just change them. They won't ask the International Federation. They'll just change them. Uh, Super League as well, you know, they just got rid of scrums. You know, they didn't have to ask the, the NRL. They just got rid of them. Whereas in Rugby Union, it seems to me, without being an expert, to get any change done because it's such a, a big sport and there's so much um, power in the Northern Hemisphere that to actually get any rule change done is actually quite difficult and quite clunky. And so, therefore, they cannot move as quickly. Yes. Again, that comes down to the kind of underlying philosophies of the two games because mm. Rugby Union very explicitly has always been conservative with a small c about rule changes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see over its history that it doesn't like what it perceives as radical rule changes. There are things that remain sacrosanct, whatever. So, for Mm. example, the three-point penalty goal Mm. has remained three points for over 130 years. And it's not going to change, despite the fact that, although the game's changed slightly, but despite the fact that a three-point penalty is a blight on the game and (laughs) still can lead to games being won by penalty goals, Mm which in rugby league would never happen. There'd simply be an outcry you know, mm. if penalty goals became a major way of deciding games. Mm. So again, it's deep within the sort of cultural DNA of the two games that they approach these questions in, in very different ways. Yeah, but it's also the size of the respective codes as well in that you know the bureaucracy of rugby union is such that getting anything done like with any large organization getting anything changed you know takes ages whereas rugby league you know because it's quite a small code if they want to change something they can basically do it tomorrow i think there's an element of truth in there but even when rugby union was dominated essentially by the rfu which controlled the game up until the 1940s Mm. It still had that. It's still very slow to move right. because it sees itself as a conservative again with a small C, a conservative body. Yeah. So yeah, if things are much more difficult now because you know they've got a bigger international organisation, that brings with it a bureaucracy, which bureaucracies are inherently conservative. Mm. That does mean that it's slower, but I think fundamentally that inertia comes from a different way of viewing the game. That essentially the basics of the rules should be preserved and conserved, and the default position is always to err against rule changes whereas in, in league obviously it's, it's pretty different as you said you know, the way in which Villandis changed the rules to get rid of the two referees and bring in the six again mm. and the way in which the bridge game has dropped scrums for this season which mm. is an incredibly radical move it is yeah that's right and it seems like UK fans seem to like it I haven't seen much of it without scrums what have you thought it's very interesting because I was surprised when I started you know when the season kicked off a couple of weeks ago I fully expected to think during matches what's going on there's no scrums but to be honest I watched the first game and I'd forgotten there were no scrums Mm. it just you didn't even notice having said that I think it's too early to make a decision on whether this is a permanent thing because it's been introduced in Britain because of COVID-19 restrictions so I think it's actually quite a good way to experiment with this shortened season to see what happens because obviously there are other considerations such as Will it make the game more one-dimensional? What mm. is the impact on player fitness and injuries? Yeah. And things like that. But there's a certain logic to the way the game's been going for the last 20 or 30 years that mm. 
do we really need the scrums? You know, American football got rid of the scrums in the 1880s. So yeah. rugby has evolved in the same way in other countries. So mm. perhaps we're at the stage now where COVID has meant that that evolutionary process has been sort of telescoped into a much shorter space of time. But I think it's too early to call. Yeah. Well, I think from a scrum perspective, I like the scrum because it gives, I think you've mentioned it before, it gives the opportunity for creativity. Now, I know yeah, there's, I do, yeah. there's an argument that most teams don't take up that opportunity, but that doesn't mean that we should get rid of it because most teams don't take up the opportunity because what's happened in the NRL this year, and I think it's been a, a really good move, is that they've shifted where you can have the scrum. So if someone drops the ball, you don't necessarily have the scrum where they drop the ball. The attacking team can choose where to have the scrum, like in the middle of the field, for yeah. instance, which provides so much more scope for creativity. So it's a, a bit of a shame in a way that the UK game hasn't been able to trial that because I think they would have seen that because I think in the NRL we've seen a bit more creativity from scrums and I think you would have seen the same in the UK game. But anyway, obviously we'll wait and see what happens next year. There's even one won against the head last week. At yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I think, like you said, the, the scrum rule in the UK is, is a health rule really that there's no scrums because of health reasons. So it's not necessarily gone yeah. forever. But I wouldn't mind them trialling what's happening in the NRL next year to see if creativity is reignited because... I think you've mentioned it as well. Different ways to restart the game just adds a little bit of variety and it just a little bit of scope for creativity because one of the great dangers for rugby league is that it can, you know, if the rules aren't perfect, if the rules aren't a great balance, it can become predictable because of the way the game's set up. I think at the moment, in the NRL at least, the product is absolutely brilliant and the rules are nicely fine-tuned and we're seeing some great football this year. But we've seen in the past that if the rules, you know, go one way or another then it can become a bit predictable. So my opinion is if you can keep the scrum and keep some form of variety that enables a bit of creativity, that's got to be a positive. Yeah, that's my feeling as well. Yeah. Now, before we get off this question, there's one other sort of hypothetical that I'll raise. And as you said, and as your book, Sport and Capitalist Society, points out, all professional sports are the product of capitalism. And as we mentioned, rugby league seems to sit towards the the social democrat side, uh, which makes sense, of course, considering its history. But... Will that always be the case? What if rugby league expands successfully and fruitfully across the world like we all would love it to and different countries have different approaches to the role of professional sport in society? For instance, what if rugby league finally cracks it in the USA? And what if the USA become the dominant nation in both rugby league and rugby union? So that's something that just crossed my mind as well. What would happen in that case in that let's say it's run by, you know, venture capitalists and they're saying, okay, these are great sports, but they're so similar now because they've converged over 100 years. You know, why have we got two codes? It could be much more efficient if we had one. Anyway, that's just one thing that popped into my mind as well. Well, this is one of the fears that people had in 1995 when Super League and then Murdoch set up Super Rugby. And essentially Murdoch financed the transition to professionalism by rugby union around the world. And there was a great fear. And Dave Hadfield, the, the great rugby league journalist in Britain, wrote some columns saying, you know, is this what is going to happen? That Murdoch is now in a position where he effectively controls both games. Right. Is he going to create a single unified code out of the best players? And it didn't happen. And I think because, in a sense, the business priority of News International was to maximise both markets because mm. they realised 
you know, they do their audience research and they've got enough common sense to realise that they're two very different markets, yeah. with two very different constituencies. And so that fear obviously never eventuated. And I think that would probably be the same if, for example, you know, there were six teams in North America playing in the Super League or, or whatever. Mm. There's still... Because I, mean, I think one of the interesting things with fans in North America is that one of the things they like about the game, about the culture of the game, is the inclusivity. So, for example, the story of Lucius Banks, African-American player who came over to Leeds to play for Hunslet in mm. 1912... In a sense, for a lot of league supporters in North America, he's become a symbol of what the game means, mm. rather than it being you know, ultra-competitive, hyper-capitalist competition. Mm. So I think, again, the cultural divide between the two sports, or the culture of any sport, is actually partially what makes it attractive once you've been hooked by the rules. Very I think true. You also, there's a people think, you know, does this game fit with my worldview? Does it make me feel good about the world mm. or good about my place in it? Because ultimately, sport of whatever type, when people become fans, committed fans of it, sport becomes a way in which people tell their stories about the world or seek to explain the world through the way that sport is. So, mm. you know, that's why, you know, rugby league people think it's the greatest game, why rugby union people think it's the game played in heaven, and soccer fans think it's a beautiful game. It tells them something about how they would like to see the world or how they understand the world. Yeah, that's right. And, and people who have a certain worldview like to hang out with other people who have a, a certain worldview. It's similar like if you go to a, a music gig or something like that. I might dress up in a check shirt and, and like a, a sweater uh, thinking I look really good and then I'll get there and there's 45,000 other people looking exactly like me, you know what I mean? So, yeah, very that's right, much, yeah. Much yeah, I mean, that's the, the social aspect of it, the feeling of belonging that sport brings is incredibly important and if, if you don't feel it, no matter how attractive you might find some music or a sport, if you don't feel you belong in it, mm. then you know you're not going to be as committed. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we've come to some conclusion here that the codes will never merge. So don't worry, ladies and gentlemen, we're safe. Okay, the next couple of questions, Tony. I want to focus on the UK rugby league specifically. So the next question is thus, Tony: Will the future of UK rugby league continue to be dictated by its past? The short answer is yes, but that's also true of all. Of all sports, the the weight of dead generations lies heavily on the minds of the living, as someone once said. Yes, but I think that also, in a sense, the implication in the question, I'm not saying you're saying this, is that Mm. rugby league is living in the past. I suppose the implication in my question is, yes, maybe living in the past, but because of that, you'll find it very hard to grow. Yeah, I think there's kind of two answers to that. The first one is that, obviously, when you think about the past, then there's different interpretations of the past. And that, as you said, there is clearly a section of people in rugby league, you know, in the leadership of the game, owners of clubs and also fans, who believe in a past where rugby league just stuck to its guns in the north of England and we should return to that because then everything will be fine and we'll just concentrate on Heartlands, forget about expansion overseas and France and all the rest of it. Now, the problem with that, that's one interpretation of the past, but I think hopefully, as people might gain from reading rugby league people's history, Mm. I'm not sure that that's actually as clear cut because rugby league has always been, for circumstances that it can never escape from, it's always been a game that's identified with the northern industrial working class because that's where it was born and that's where rugby, before the split, became so popular and so powerful. Mm. But the times that rugby league has been at its greatest strength, and you know, particularly look at the 1940s, 1950s, going back to the era where the championship final could have 80, 83, 84,000 people. Billy Boston was scoring tries by the hatful. Rugby league was strong in the north of England, but also 
it had a very strong cosmopolitan element that made it different from other British sports. So there were large numbers of Australian and New Zealand players for a certain period of time, South African players, including black and mixed-race South African players, Mm -hmm. Fijians coming over to play, and even Tollins in the late 1950s. It had, you know, Roy Francis, black coaches. Seth Thompson, black guy from Huntley, who played for Great Britain, was also a coach. So the idea that rugby league, you know, belongs to some mythical, exclusively Northern English culture misses the point. One of the reasons why rugby league was so attractive was because, yes, it offered a, a picture of the North as a, you know, a democratic, inclusive society that was rich and vibrant, and rugby league was an expression of that. Mm. But, but also, it brought people in from the outside. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who's the biggest try scorer in rugby league history, particularly in the 40s and 50s? Brian Bevan, mm. an Australian who played here for decades. Players came from the outside in Wales. So I think that if you look at the past, you know, there's an alternative model of the past that here we have rugby league very strong in its heartland, so to speak, but one of the reasons why it is strong is because it's looking beyond its heartlands at the same time. It's looking outside and bringing people in from outside. And I think, really, that's the kind of, if you want to go back to the past and look at a model, then not losing sight of the northern heartlands, which I know is a phrase Mm. some people dislike, but I think we have to acknowledge reality, but also bringing a cosmopolitanism and internationalism into the game, which I think, you know, there's elements of that that can be seen with the Catalans side, Toulouse in the in the championship, mm. and, you know, God knows what's going to happen with the Wolfpack, but mm. if the Wolfpack come back next year or the Ottawa club, and despite all the problems these non-English clubs may have beneath the surface and the way they are run, which really is no different from any club <laughs> in England, then, in a sense, they're returning rugby league to its successful traditions of bringing outsiders into the game and giving it something that no other British sport has. So, Mm. yeah, in a sense, there's different models of the past that can be looked at and explored in use, so... Yeah, that's beautifully put. And just on a a related note, I suppose, I've heard some people suggest rugby league in the UK can't grow unless it it minimises or forgets its working-class ethos. So, you know, if it does that, it can attract other people to the game that presumably have more money and then presumably they can attract better sponsors, I don't know, like finance companies and airlines and multinationals. But there are surely examples of sporting competitions and organisations with working class roots succeeding without shying away from those roots. Obviously, the NRL can be cited as an example. I'm not a motorsport guy, but NASCAR in the US is, a, is enormous and they seem to celebrate yeah. their culture and profit from that. So yeah, it kind of raises the question for me, is it class or geography playing a major role here because the game in the UK obviously started as a class battle, a workers' rights issue, but it's very hard to separate geography out of that story. It's a story of the north of England versus those in the south. So has that fact given rugby league in the UK such an attachment to location that the sport is ultimately permanently hemmed in by that attachment and unable to ever generate genuine growth? So I think it's fair to say, you know, rugby league in Australia has broken through to the mainstream. So while it maintains its working class ethos, it's a mainstream sport that by definition has infiltrated the middle classes, which is a a really good achievement. The game in the UK, meanwhile, has not been able to break out really from its working class market. Are the class structures so much more suffocating in the UK that it makes it that much harder to break through? Or is the, the attachment to the game's birthplace the bigger issue? Because it's not just a matter of rugby league potentially being attached to a location it's the rest of the country that reinforces that attachment as well do you have any thoughts on on that ramble yeah there's a lot of things that you've said that i think are particularly important the other example i've used of a sport that is seen as an outsider sport or trades on an image of an outsider sport is the nba 
Mm. American basketball is seen as an urban, predominantly African-American sport Mm. that's outside the establishment. And it's traded on that, particularly over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it's not held it back at all. And I think the the way to look at rugby league's heritage is that it's the original equal opportunity sport. You know, in the 21st century, the key things that are going on or the key narratives that are going on in sport are about inclusivity and diversity. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how rugby league started off in 1895. Mm. You can play this game, whatever your background, wherever you come from. We're only interested in in how good you are. And I think that's how it should be marketed. It's easy to say that sitting here, but Mm. that's the basis on which it should be marketed. And also, I think, in terms of marketing, the tremendous skill of the players. I mean, you look at every week when wingers score tries in the corner. And again, going back to the NBA, the NBA marketed itself on the tremendous hand skills of the players, slam dunks, Mm. the incredible acrobatics of making a basket. Well, you know, you can see those type of things every week in rugby league, the incredible skills of the players. In a sense, the NBA is a bit of a model mm-hmm. of how the game could be marketed. In terms of Britain, there is a problem in Britain because Britain is a, well, all societies have classes, but in Britain, class is so deeply ingrained into everyday life. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for anything that's deemed to be working class or associated with working class to be treated at the same level as things that are not seen as working class, mm-hmm. not so closely identified with the working class. So I think that is an issue that needs to be dealt with, and that does make expansion within Britain very difficult. Right. Because wherever you go in Britain, people have conceptions about rugby league that are probably nowhere near the reality. And that's outside of areas where rugby union is strong, or clearly you've got another set of problems. But such is the way in which class determines so much culture in Britain. Mm. It's very difficult for rugby league not to expand at a grassroots level because the game has actually expanded across Britain over the last 20 years in a phenomenal way, which it never has done before. But Mm. in terms of creating professional clubs that have deep resonance in their local communities, I think that's very difficult because rugby league is, is associated very closely with certain perceptions about the working class in Britain that make it difficult to break out of that, which is why the international expansion is so important. Mm. Because the other thing, and I think one of the problems with the rugby league is that it's not really taken into account how things have changed since 1995. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to your early point about being stuck in the past. There's been very little acknowledgement of the tremendous changes that have taken place in Britain and the world since 1995. And I think to some extent the game is still proceeding as if it's in the pre-1995 area. Mm. So you've got problems like, well, as you alluded to earlier on, the massive change in the media landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rugby league is still grappling with how much terrestrial versus satellite coverage it should have. Mm. But the game is moving rapidly on from there anyway. Now the real discussion is how do you use social media? How are you going to get across to a young audience that uh, only views sport in five-minute clips on Google? So there seems to be very little awareness of that. The fact that rugby union has gone professional has meant that much of the ability of rugby league to attract union players has died out. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the traditional route from South Wales to the north of England has almost closed. Not quite, because Regan Grace is still doing a fantastic job at St Helens. And mm-hmm. There are other Welsh players like Ben Flowers still doing a great job, but it's unlikely in the foreseeable future that rugby league is ever going to be able to recruit the, the captain of the world's national rugby union team, which it did in the 1980s with mm. Jonathan Davis. And that's a huge problem because when you look back, I think it's the case that I think Robert Gay, the English rugby league historian, once worked out that it wasn't until 1957 or something like that that a great Britain team played that didn't have a Welsh player in it. Mm. 
Mm. And then that was only because an exceptional amount of injuries to Welsh players in 1957. Mm. So we have to deal with that. And then fundamentally, not only has the north of England been deindustrialised over the past 30 to 40 years, since 2008, it's also been hit hardest by austerity to mm. the extent that now half the English teams in Super League are in areas that are in the 10% most deprived areas of Britain. Wow. And the other five are in the bottom 20%. Mm. So the amount of money available to rugby league is shrinking all the time, which mm. means that you have to expand even to survive, to support the game in its traditional heartland areas. Mm. And I think those are the things the game has to come to terms with. And I've never seen any evidence that there's any acknowledgement or attempt to deal with how we overcome those long-term structural problems. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's just fascinating stuff. And I think listening to you there, when I was talking about class and location, it seems to me that, you know, it's obviously very difficult to divorce those two things when you're talking about the north of England and the working class. So, yep, fair enough. Okay, Tony, one more for the road. This has been quite epic, but let's go with this last question, which is quite an epic question in itself. So in the Western world, the biggest social divide of our time is is becoming the cosmopolitan parochial divide, which you could also describe as the sort of globalist and nationalist divide, which aligns fairly neatly, but not perfectly, with the urban regional divide. Yeah, all these social divides that 24-7 communication and social media are deepening and entrenching. There are a few sports where these divides are so obvious and so relevant than they are with UK Rugby League. So it's related to the questions we've spoken about in the past, but how do you read this phenomenon and how may it affect Rugby League in the UK in the future? Well, I've, I've got a slightly different stance on it because I think that it's more to do with the way in which Western economies are excluding greater and greater numbers from the wealth that they generate in the way in which the uh, polarisation of wealth is becoming much more extreme. In the north of England in particular, you can see that. You go through any rugby league town and the extent of poverty. I mean, in some places, like I come from Hull originally, I'm mm. a Hulkinson Rove supporter, and Rovers play in the east of Hull. It's one of the most deprived areas in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. And you go on the way to the ground, you know, you see houses boarded up. It looks like downtown Detroit in some mm. places. And that's a fundamental problem, you know, and it's, so it's no accident that a lot of people in the north of England, well, and not just the north of England, any you know, post-industrial town in England, feel excluded, left behind and ignored by the politicians and the people who control the economy. And so there's something of a backlash mm. against that. And you saw that at the recent general election, the Brexit referendum in 2016. Mm. So I don't think that it tells the full story by looking at it simply in terms of, you know, people more internationalist versus more nationalist or, or whatever. I think there's a sense amongst a, a huge number of working people in Britain and you know, the rest of Europe that they're kind of being excluded and left behind. Mm. Rugby League's role in that is that a lot of the people who feel that are Rugby League supporters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a debate at the last general election in Britain over the question of working to man, which mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm sure you and your listeners will be aware that the Conservative Party wanted to target traditional working class seats in the north of England, the characteristics of which they felt were a significant number of voters were male rugby league fans. Mm. And so in some of those seats, some very closely identified with rugby league, such as Lee Mm. in East Lancashire, became Conservative Party seats for the first time in in decades. Mm. So within that then, then, that means that rugby league has a role to play and this is where its history comes to the fore again that this is a sport that was built on inclusivity diversity and promoting the equality of opportunity for 
all people, working class people in the north of England, but also the way in which it gave opportunities to people from outside of the north of England who were excluded from their sports, such as black Welsh rugby union players. Mm. And I think, if you like, that's the, the stance that the game needs to take in both promoting itself and promoting the values of its communities that made its communities strong. And the game, I mean, to be fair, the game does a lot of work in communities that most clubs have charitable foundations that mm. do lots of community work. Rugby League Cares, which is an organisation I'm very involved in because of its heritage work, mm-hmm. does a tremendous amount in terms of mental health and well-being in working-class communities across the north of England. So there's lots of stuff going on. So the game is already playing a role. I think it needs to heighten its... Uh, which is doing to some extent. I think Super League have done a good job over Black Lives Matter since it came back. But I think it needs to put that at its absolute core because when that has been at the core of rugby league, then that's when it's been at its strongest. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the Workington Man thing because obviously... The rugby league vote, I was having a conversation with Lec Blaine, who wrote a, a great essay recently about class and rugby league in Australia. And on a recent podcast, we were talking about the rugby league vote and how that has been up for grabs in Australian politics. And the Workington Man thing is kind of a similar element, but with kind of subtle differences in that with the Workington Man thing in the UK, it seemed that the UK government were going for the rugby league vote but without the rugby league whereas in australia they were including rugby league in their shtick if you know what i mean with the the prime minister sort of becoming this kind of hokey rugby league dad sort of thing so it's interesting how they've both recognized that it is a potential vote winner now in terms of the social divides of our time I, i suppose what i'm getting at is when i think about the constant debates around expansion or not expansion in the UK. For me, that sort of rings bells in terms of that cosmopolitan or parochial divide. And that debate's been going on and on for decades about whether you should expand the UK rugby league footprint or focus on areas of existing strength. There's no reason why these debates won't continue to go around in circles for the decades ahead because these divides, they make it virtually impossible to ever come to a resolution. Many cultural debates are never fully resolved and go round and round forever, but sport is generally more straightforward because there are business imperatives that generally resolve things one way or another. But uh, with rugby league in the UK, it seems to me these issues are more cultural than business related. So they're, of course, couched in business rhetoric, but there's something deeper going on. And therefore, that's where I see it in those sorts of debates, but also cultural debates that come up. If you talk about social democrat politics, that sort of coalition between the working class traditions and the sort of urban university educated side of things as well, it's a kind of very tricky coalition to try balance and a sort of rugby league, it seems, is caught in that tricky area of knowing who to sort of please and and which way to go, it seems to me that rugby league is in the UK kind of stuck with that divide and and there's not really a way out of it. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I I think that divide in British rugby league has always been there, Mm. you know, regardless of the state of society, going back right to the the early 1900s when discussions about how far the Northern Union should extend its influence. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, in a sense, that when the Challenge Cup was introduced in 1897, that was an attempt to build a, to create a national rugby equivalent of the FA Cup, which didn't happen because obviously the hostility of the rugby union and the limited forces of the, mm. of the northern union meant that it just remained a, a northern competition by and large mm-hmm. so it, there's always been that divide within rugby league which i think in a certain sense reflects the divide within working class life the, mm. do you try to protect what you already have by you know staying where you are or do you try and 
defend what you have by going out and, and getting more. So mm. there's this kind of... Um, it's a really good point. Uh, maybe in the 1950s, the divide would, would have been equated with militant and moderate trade union tactics or something like that. So, I, you know, I think that it's just that that deep divide, as you've said, within rugby league, is just mapped onto whatever is going on in society at any particular point. Can that ever be resolved? Um, I think probably can, in a sense, because one of the, the interesting things about rugby league is that it's a small mass spectator sport in Britain. So it has all the characteristics of how soccer operates, professional clubs, mm. you know, local communities deeply invested in their local team, you know, commercialism balanced against you know opportunity for working class youngsters to, to make a name for themselves that they wouldn't be able to do in any other sphere of life. Mm. So you have that, but on the other hand, you know, it's not the overwhelming juggernaut that, that is soccer, nor does it have the you know the inbuilt establishment conservatism of rugby union. So it's able to change, as we've just talked about, in terms of the rules and things like that, mm. because it is small and it doesn't suffer from the same inertia as the sports. Mm. So I think there's a potential. If there was a, a leadership with sufficient self-awareness in the game, then that contradiction could be resolved through a, you know, a strategic plan that took both the needs of again, the Northern Heartlands into account and the greater need of the sport to expand itself. Mm-hmm. But one of the problems with the, in a sense, it's a constitutional issue, the, the Rugby Football League is essentially an alliance of clubs. Mm-hmm. And that means that it's very difficult for the RFL itself to make decisions without antagonising a section or more of the clubs, yeah, and this is also true in Australia as well. As you know, the successive chairman of the Australian Rugby Commission have discovered mm. that there are so many vested interests involved in the game that it's it's like trying to steer a tanker. It's very <laughs> difficult to change direction. But having said that, in British rugby league, obviously it's small, it's not as big. So I think there is that potential, and I think one of the great again going back to the the Super League war in '95 in Britain, that was an opportunity to change the way in which rugby league was controlled because here you had Rupert Murdoch offering £87 million to the mm. game. You know, if there had been a kind of full strategic view of where the game should go, then that's a, that would be a great way to refashion the constitution of the game mm. so that it wasn't dominated by clubs. So so I think, you know, if you had a really smart leadership that had a properly thought-out strategy, mm. then I think that could be resolved. And as I said, I think the model would be that you would want to ensure that the Northern Heartland is strong, but also that that has to be developed through international club expansion. Mm. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything particularly original or, or innovative about that, but it's just that it's very difficult to achieve given the way that rugby league is organised. But that's not to say that you know, without smart leadership with a good vision of what it wanted to do, it's not impossible. You know, and although it's early days, yeah, you can see the way that Peter Villandis has changed the NRL in his short period as, as, as chair there. Then mm. you know, there's no reason why that can't happen in Britain. Yeah, right. And the other well, thing, sorry, the other sure, thing, and I think what was very interesting in Lex article, mm. and I, I think this is a really important point, is that if that happened in Britain, that would galvanise the sport because one of the things that is incredibly important to rugby league. It's self-confidence. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about the ability to sign Welsh Rugby Union players was that it put Rugby League on the map. And if you were a Rugby League supporter, you know, when Jonathan Davis was signed, when John Devereux was signed, mm. or Scott Gibbs was signed in the 80s and 90s, there was a bit more of a zip in your step when you heard that. Because it's like Rugby League was getting one over the Rugby Union establishment. Mm. 
And when rugby league does that, it galvanises its support base and it it overcomes those issues. And I think, to some extent, as like Blaine pointed out in his article, that's what Villandis has done as well. Mm. When rugby league is strong and assertive, it brings the game together. And I think that's what we need. Well, yeah, that's a fascinating insight. Now, Tony, we're out of questions now. I've, I've kept you long enough, but because we've covered so much ground, I just wanted to check if there's anything you'd like to add before we finish up. I think it's one of the problems I think that the game has is that it can be very introverted and very depressing. And it doesn't take much for people in rugby league, particularly in Britain, to start talking about. I think the game's dying. It's at death's door. <laughs> you know, it's it's not going anywhere. Mm. And to be honest, we've heard this ever since the first week of September 1895. That mm. The game couldn't survive, and you know, it survived through. You know, look what it survived through. It's been banned by Vichy France. Mm. It's suffered establishment bans, discrimination by rugby, and all the rest of it. It doesn't take much to get it on the right track. Mm. And I think that despite the deep problems that face the game in Britain, then there's nothing there that's irresolvable or cannot be changed and rugby league put on a more sound and more confident footing. So, you know, and I think that's one of the things that I've tried you know, to take you back to the book. To mm. One of the things that hopefully people take away from the book, that despite the problems that the game has and has always had to some extent, then there's a, an incredible well of support and yeah, in, in a sense, there's plenty of tools and experiences in the past that can put the game back on a solid footing again. Mm. It just takes a bit of thought and courageous leadership. Well, that's a great note to end it on. Tony, we've covered some territory today. and We could talk all day, but we are unfortunately out of time. But I want to thank you for taking the time and wandering through the fields of speculation with me. It's just been so much fun. So, Tony, as we thank you for your unending generosity, I also want to wish you luck with your new book, Rugby League of People's History, as well as all your other exciting projects, including but not limited to the new Rugby League History Museum, which will be opening at the site of the George Hotel in Huddersfield, the scene of Rugby League's birth 125 years ago. That's probably an ideal way to tie things up and end our chat today. So, Tony, thanks again for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks, John. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Wonderful. Progressive Rugby League. Professor Tony Collins, ladies and gentlemen, could you please give it up for the great man? I obviously can't hear you, but I trust you're applauding vigorously, an ornament to the game and a great sport too. Friends, thanks for coming with us on this little detour. I thoroughly enjoyed tentatively strolling into future dimensions with you. Alrighty, let's call it a day, let's call it a night, let's rest our collective minds and come back fresh for our next adventure. Until we next meet, don't forget to let Rugby League hold you and hold me! And see ya.